What's good, what's good, what's good, fam? Welcome back to another episode of the Reimagining Youth Work podcast. This episode, I sat down with Brother Atreus Good out of Mentor, North Carolina. Uh, Atreus and I have a significant amount of synergy. Um, we vibe, as they say. I really enjoy speaking with him. We talked a lot about authenticity. You know, as I'm thinking about what to name each episode, I'm, I'm listening to the conversation that I've had um, with the person I'm interviewing, and I'm thinking about sort of that through line, right? And with Atreus, he, he, he gave a lot of, he was vulnerable. He gave some really val valuable information about his own upbringing, how that has connected him to mentoring as he was mentored um, at a young age and had opportunities throughout his life to be supported by folks and talked about you know, what it meant to him given what, was, what he was going through in his young life. But he also, talk, he also talks a lot about how he shows up in this mentoring and youth development work um, and what it means to be critical, what it means to be bold, what it means to be unapologetic, what it means to be honest, what it means to really do work in ways that are authentic and vulnerable. And so as you listen to this episode, I really want you to take away these ideas about how we show up as whole folks, how we show up as, as our authentic selves in the work and what that means um, as we are engaging young people and attempting to be models for them. Again, a lot of gems dropped. Really hope you enjoyed the episode. Let's get on it. This is Dr. Tori weaston certain and you are listening to Reimagining Youth Work. What's good, family? How are you all today? I am sitting here with Atreus Good. Atreus Good is president and CEO at Mentor North Carolina. He's also the founder of an organization called Movement of Youth, and he is coming out of North Carolina. How are you? How are you? Oh, I'm doing well today. Yeah, I appreciate that. It's, it's, um, it's getting better. I think the longer we stay in, the more I adjust. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You've been holding up? Yeah, it's been good. The weather today is outstanding. So I had a nice walk earlier and yeah. Good, good. Well, I want to thank you for being willing to interview here on this podcast. Mm -hmm. I'm excited to hear from you. We, you and I have a lot of synergy so yeah, I, we think, do. <laughs> <laughs> I think the, an opportunity to talk to you is always a good opportunity. Um, and I know folks who are listening won't see this, but folks who grab the podcast in the visual form will notice that Atreus is rocking dope African print. <laughs> I appreciate and, that. Thank you. <laughs> yes, it's beautiful. And you know what? I almost wore like my Ghana get up today and I was like, nah, it's a little too warm. See, yeah. I wasn't I wasn't in the right mind frame. We, we could have been twinsies. It's we OK. Could have been. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, th there's a there's a lot of things that I want to talk to you about. Okay. Uh, let's please start with just you giving a little more of a thorough introduction of yourself and the work that you're doing out there in North Carolina. Sure. So I'd say my journey starts from childhood. Uh, I grew up in Atlanta for a bit. Well, actually in, in Clarkston, which is a little bit outside of Atlanta. 
And I think it's important for me to share my origin story because it helps to give some runway as to why I'm doing the work that I'm doing right now. Uh, my mom, when I was about five years old, started using crack cocaine. And so because of her addiction, there were several things that I had to experience at an early age, uh, be that physical, verbal, uh, sexual abuse, things that just really um, created a lot of trauma for me. Uh, my father was there, but his primary objective was uh, keeping the lights on. So making sure that I had food in my stomach and clothing on my back, but the emotional support that I needed was absent. And very early on, I learned that it wasn't acceptable for me to share my emotions. And so I had a lot of what I've been calling private moments of sorrow, where mm. if I had to cry about something, I just did it on my own. And that was something that really helped me to understand ways that I could deal with stuff on my own, but I still needed support. And so in middle school, I got connected with a mentor through the 100 Black Men of America. We had moved to Charlotte and their motto is what they see is what they'll be. So the idea of visioning that seeing people that look like you in positions of influence can help mm -hmm. you to see yourself in that space. And so my mentor, I'd say, while he's tremendously successful professionally, we stay, we still stay in touch. So I've known him for going on 22 years. Um, the most important thing he did for me was allow me a space to cry, to shed my emotions, to recognize that being able to fully experience emotions is a way in which you can uh, move through them and then figure out what sort of lessons you may want to take from that. Graduated from high school, got a scholarship from 100 to attend college, first generation college student, and then started my agency movement of youth when I was a junior at UNC Chapel Hill, which is where I went undergrad and tried to create the same type of community. At that point, it was just for young men of color. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. several of them were also struggling and did not have safe spaces where they could be vulnerable and be emotionally present. And so we tried to create that for them. And then that following year opened it up to young ladies and uh, eventually scaled at, at our max. We were working across four states, uh, hundreds wow. of students across the country. Um, and this was really sparked by previous movement of you graduates going off to college and wanting to start their own movement. And so essentially we developed a playbook that they could implement on their own college campuses. Uh, fast forward around 2016, 2017, got connected. By the way, with, real quick, this is you. You're a junior in college. Yeah. Okay, yeah. <laughs> I'm just saying. OK, go ahead. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, so got got connected with uh, National Mentoring Partnership around 2016, 2017, and uh, started a feasibility study. And so really wanted to make sure that as we began this work here, we were able to articulate what an affiliate could look like here. Mm -hmm. And from that, we centered our work on racial equity. Uh, so there were mentoring programs across the state that were sharing feedback around uh, the ways in which um, having mentors that were uh, matched with uh, mentees that perhaps it was a cross-racial match. Uh, if, so if you had a white mentor working with a, uh, a black or brown mentee, if they don't have the appropriate cultural lens, uh, they can do damage. And so uh, then also looking at disparities when it came to funding, where you had uh, several white-led agencies that were working in black and brown communities that were getting money thrown at them, and black and brown agencies were struggling just on basics because they weren't receiving funding. Uh, and so that's something that I shared uh, with Mentor uh, nationally. And I would say fast forward now uh, helping to lead the work with our National Committee on Diversity, Equity, Inclusion. So figuring out uh, how do we codify racial equity work across affiliates so that it's not something that is 
an aside, but it's just the way we operate, the way right. we do business. And so, uh, so for me, I, I think I look at uh, mentoring through the lens of, of racial equity and social justice. That is that black and brown kids don't need to be saved. Uh, they've been systematically stripped of power. So mentoring should be positioned in such a way that adults and young folks walk hand in hand to figure out how to disrupt these systems that have created the need for mentoring in the first place. Absolutely. There's a lot there. I want to start with the 100 black men. Yep. Because I've had a couple of other conversations with folks so far about their work in schools, um, higher ed or K through 12. And in both of those stories, community organizations were absent. Mm. So when you talk about 100 black men, you know, talk to me about like what their community, how did they get to you or, or did your family connect them to you? Where, how were they present in community that you were able to find them? Well, I would say it was really my sixth grade teacher, Miss Reed, who recognized that I had potential, but there were things that she noticed that I was perhaps holding back. Mm -hmm. And so she interrogated that and, and just learned that I had a difficult upbringing. And then she connected me to the 100s program. And so um, that was something that really opened me up because I was, I was meeting, you know, black doctors, black bankers, black lawyers, scuba divers, chefs, just, a, yeah. a broad array of, uh, black brilliance. And it gave me, um, a lens to see myself differently because I could see myself in these men that I was interacting with. And so, uh, so I'd say in that way, uh, the 100 really was present. So it wasn't just my, um, my primary mentor, but there were other black men surrounding me. Uh, that helped me to just figure out some things. Uh, I think one of the things that I've been sharing more often about my experience with the 100, and this is this is holding two things at once. And so I'm I'm greatly appreciative that I was given the opportunity to participate in the 100s program. Mm -hmm. uh, I think on the the flip side, though, a lot of what I was taught was the art of code switching, the the intellectual and and you know just gymnastics that that black and brown folks have right. to engage in in order to be deemed as acceptable uh, to white folks. And so that meant dressing a certain type of way. It meant making good eye contact. It meant all these things that, you know, over time, it can diminish your self-esteem because you recognize that when you walk into a certain space, you have to prepare yourself right. to behave differently. Mm -hmm. And that's something that I really struggled with when I was in college uh, because I was there on an academic scholarship and very much tried to embody code switching and kept coming in contact with um, unenlightened white people that would say ridiculous stuff to me. Mm -hmm. um, you know, walking across campus and uh, asking, what sport do I play? Mm -hmm. Or, you know, the lyrics of this song or being in a white classroom, raising my hand, not getting called on when I have the answer. And so uh, I was constantly othered. And because I didn't have the equity lens that I do now, I internalized that and I thought something right. was wrong with me and nearly flunked out that first year. And so so really, it's really important, um, in particular, when you have uh, mentoring agencies such as the 100 that are working with, with black boys and men to, to really uncover the ways in which um, I think a lot of black folks have internalized uh, this inferiority complex due to racism. And that mm -hmm. part of that is figuring out how do you disconnect from the white gaze uh, and exist uh, in spaces where you can be authentic and true to who you truly are. Yeah. Let's, I mean, let's talk more about that too. How do, how do you, how do you do that? Uh, because I feel like, you know, folks like you and I, we almost do it naturally. Okay. Uh, it's, it's a part of, 
it's a part of who we are, but it's also part of what we've learned in terms of just our, our critical race lens, right? Mm. But if you're not us, how do you do that? How do you make your mentoring program, your youth development space, a space that supports that kind of work for young people? Well, I would say a lot of that is interrogating history. I think that's what I've really appreciated just about um, your book and, and others that are centering uh, getting the clearest understanding possible about our societal context and also uh, where we exist within that. And I think that getting that clear understanding sometimes is the most difficult part for people because they avoid the truth and they engage in behaviors that keep them out of awareness. And I think that if we can confront what is and we do so from a space that's not judging the situation, but just acknowledging the truth, then that's an exercise that can move you towards action. Yeah. And so if you recognize that race is a social construct, then you know it's not real, which means that if you engage in behaviors that suggest that race is something that's real, then you're, you're actively denying your intellect. You know, I think the same thing uh, when it comes to uh, to sexuality. And so one of the things that, that I've been doing uh, now is is coming out, you know, and just really uh, sharing where I am, um, you know, on the sexual spectrum, because I recognize just like race is a social construct, such so is sexuality and gender. And to me, I would be actively denying my intelligence if I continue to perform in ways mm -hmm. that I know are not true. And so if we can get clear on what's true and what's not, then we can behave in ways that are much more honest. Yeah. So that's a concept. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I say it that way because, you know, I feel like when we, when we have these conversations, it feels easy. Hmm. Right. It's like, well, just do this. Yep. <laughs> and, and for, you know, for us on some level it is, I mean, there are definitely, definitely things that I've had to unlearn. Right. Hmm. Um, and you mentioned sexuality, you know, I tell folks that even, as a as a as a as a black queer woman and someone who has for the most part been pretty you know open um mm -hmm. young people still keep teaching me things about sexuality in that spectrum mm -hmm. that you know i thought i fully understood you know yeah. as a lesbian right which is how i identify and then mm -hmm. young people come along and they're like well there's such a thing as non-binary and there's such a thing as you know, there's just, there's all of these different sort of like labels. We, we want yep. to say labels, but just also just identities, ways of expressing, right? Um, and so even as a person who is queer, who understands what mm. it means to be queer, I feel like there's a constant challenge of like, okay, nah, I can't just say lesbian because yep. that's not how this young lady identifies. She's identifying as, you know, non-binary or she's identifying as pansexual or mm -hmm. something that um, doesn't necessarily like encompass my own experience. Yep. I think that's a lot of what you're challenging us to do, right? Is say, um, let's learn about mm -hmm. and understand these experiences so that we can be more intentional, yep. right? And how we move. So even those of us who exist in these sort of marginalized identities, it doesn't mean that we even know <laughs> Yeah, that's all, right. Yeah. <laughs> all of the things, right? I mean, it is a constant learning process for all of us, mm -hmm. right? How are the programs that you're working with in North Carolina? Um, and I want to situate this question specifically in the context of the South, because, you know, I'm okay. in Southern California. People got a lot of ideas mm -hmm. about what's going on in the South. Um, how are programs receiving the kind of message that you are preaching in terms of, you know, race, 
class, sexuality, and how you want them to, to engage their young folks? I think everybody's on a different journey. And I think that part of me becoming more open about who I am has created more pathways towards compassion because I think that I recognize I wasn't always here and I, there are books that I hadn't read yet. There are conversations that I hadn't had. And so I think that um, folks seem to be receptive, but I think it's um, honoring where they are on the journey and, and trying to uh, seek clarity and understanding and helping them to get to where it is they, they want to go. And I think that's, that's difficult, you know, in particular, if you, if you feel you have a different understanding than someone, um, this, this notion of, of not beating them over the head with what you believe is right. Um, you know, so I think there's space for all of us. And I think that if we're, um, I think what's most important for me is that if people are committed to learning, um, you don't have to know something, but if you're, curious if you're interested in in exploration then let's do that together and let's figure out uh what happens what unfolds uh because of that learning process and i think what becomes more difficult is that when people hear certain words they are shut off from learning because something's been triggered and they can't they can't hear anything else because they have decided they don't want to receive that message. And so, uh, so I think what's most important is that when we're engaging with programs, how do we generate enough curiosity that they want to go on that learning journey? Yeah, absolutely. And a lot of what you just talked about too, is about adults bringing their own baggage into the room. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, which is, which is a whole other issue. I mean, we, we, we assume that young people are the ones that need to get fixed and yeah, it's it's interesting, but in all of my youth work, I spend more time talking to adults because they're they need mm-hmm. to get ready to be in front That's of right. young people, right? That's right. Yeah. yeah. So this radical work <laughs> that you're talking about, <laughs> um, and I know radical could be a bad word for some folks, but I mean, mm-hmm. I think that people would see this as as work that's you know sort of definitely outside of the tradition of mentoring, mm-hmm. right? Um, how do you get funded for this kind of work? Because I know one of the, the questions that a lot of folks have are, you know, I want to push the boundaries. I want to kind mm. of do things a little, a little differently. I want to be innovative, but mm. I feel like funders won't align with me um, and won't see my work as, as fundable. Mm. Well, I mean, you know, to be honest, I think for us, it's been, it's been hit or miss. I think there are some spaces where, I can speak my truth and folks honor it and they want to fund it. Uh, there are other spaces where folks expected me to compromise my views because of money. And I think that what I've learned is that, well, first, you know, money's not my master. So um, I'm not going to um, not share a message that I know is true because you're threatening to take away funding. And, and that's happened to me on several occasions where when I began to speak more clearly and directly, um, wasn't getting calls back from folks or um, contracts were, uh, were changed. Um, or there were some contracts that, that you know, and I, I always try to speak internally with my team just to make mm-hmm. sure we're on the same page. There's some money we just, we, we walk away from, you mm-hmm. know, where we weren't having a good working relationship and we were sharing what we found to be true and folks weren't listening. So I said, well, we're just not going to work with you. You know, right. so I think that, um, in doing this work, there's always a balance between uh, being able to have the capacity and being able to be sustainable. And so I think right. that 
folks have to figure out how they show up in the most authentic way to attract dollars that align with those values. And, and so far, um, that's been working for us. I mean, we have relationships with school districts. Um, you know, we've been uh, now getting some support from uh, Mentor Nationally. Uh, we have been able to to do all sorts of creative things. And I think that um, it's it's it feels good for me to wake up in the morning and to be able to look myself in the face and recognize that uh, I am who I say I am. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's, that's the, the struggle in this work, really being authentic, because I think that uh, young folks, they can smell BS. And so if you're telling them uh, this is how you need to show up, and they recognize you're not doing that over time. They're like, well, why should I listen to you? You're not able to do what it is you say uh, you are doing. And, and so, I, so I think authenticity for me, uh, even when it comes to where we get money from, is, is very important. Good. Thank you so much. I definitely want to talk to you a little more about your international experience. Okay. So when I was doing the research to to interview you for the podcast. Like I, um, so I knew that you were already taking folks to Cuba. But then when I saw, started doing my research, I saw that you had done work in Africa. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so you have like a lot of, basically you have a, a good, a solid international experience um, that is about you, but that's also about young, young folks. Mm-hmm. So I want to ask about first your own international experiences, why you think that's important? And then why do you think it's important for young folks to have those experiences as, as well? Well, so so my first time out of the country was uh, actually when I was in I was in grad school. So that's when I went to South Africa. And I think being able to be connected to um, to my people was something um, I didn't recognize how visceral of, of an experience that would be. I mean, there are a lot of just nonverbals and ways in which uh, black people move globally, that there, there's solidarity there, yes, yes. <laughs> you know, uh, and, and just being able to, to soak in uh, the history there. Uh, and then, you know, uh, afterwards going to Cuba and, uh, you know, second uh, black ex- experience I'd had in my life and just recognizing that, you know, um, if you consider the, the movement of the, the, the transatlantic Atlantic slave trade, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of black folks ended up in Cuba and then in the U.S. And so uh, Cuba is very much uh, rich in its African history. Mm-hmm. And I think what I appreciate is there's not this notion of, of transaction and relationships. Uh, folks, folks really want to uh, get a good understanding as to who you are as a person. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's not about, uh, you know, a title that you have. It's not about uh, where you work. It's not about what sort of uh, house you live in. It's really uh, who are you at the core? You know, what do you like to do? Uh, you know, we when we went, um, uh, I've led uh, delegations to Cuba and we spent some time in Matanzas and it's uh, one of the historically black areas. You know, so we go to the park and folks are playing dominoes and just talking trash. Yes. I mean, just just all sorts of incredibly black things. Uh-huh. And it's, it's just felt uh, great to, to be able to experience that. And I think um, when you send young people abroad, I think it gives them an opportunity to disconnect from uh, this notion of the of the U.S. being being the beacon of, of the world and, and, and being able to interrogate the ways that the U.S. has been violent uh, across uh, the globe and, and then coming back with a, a sense of responsibility really to really call out those things and figure out ways that we can we can be kinder uh, in other communities. And so mm-hmm. I think that. Uh, young folks being able to experience it, I think, is something that can, they can take with them for the rest of their lives. Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, you're talking about that. I remember when I went to London for the first time, I actually 
lived in the UK for a while. I first started studying abroad and we were visiting London and we were getting on a train and I saw this black guy with cornrows and a jean jacket and jeans. And I looked at him like, oh, that's my brother. Like I, I just, there was an immediate connection, but I also didn't have the wherewithal to consider him anything other than black American. So yeah. when I spoke to him, I was fully expecting to get an American accent. And then a British accent came out. <laughs> and I, I remember that being like the first time in my life that I was like, there are other black people. <laughs> yeah. Like, like, no, like black people are everywhere. They're not just yeah. in America. Right. Um, but I remember that being like one of those moments in my head that I, that I was fine. Like I was the first time I was aware of the diaspora. Mm. Right. And, yeah. and I remember thinking like, this is something that all young people should experience. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. um, because we're everywhere and there That's are things right. that connect us. We out there. That's we right. <laughs> we're definitely out there. Um, and so the youth delegation that you're, you're talking about um, taking to Cuba, can you talk to us a little bit about that? Sure. So uh, so we've led uh, or we've sent youth abroad to Cuba before to uh, stay at the M MLK Center mm -hmm. in, in Havana. And so um, and in that feedback, uh, the organization that we were working with uh, traditionally were sending white youth there. Uh, and so uh, to my knowledge, um, I don't know how many all black youth delegations have gone there. And I think that being able to be in community with folks that look like you uh, to have deep conversations about race, politics, culture, uh, what that means uh, and the individual responsibility we have moving things forward uh, is something that's going to be really special. And so hoping to do that in uh, June of 2021 and, uh, yes. you know, hopefully getting you involved in that, too, I would love uh, to. to to bring some dope young folks uh, to Cuba and really, really build community and then come back to the U.S. Uh, recharge. Yeah, absolutely. I love it. Man, I'm excited about that. And I and, you know, as you're extending me the offer to go to Cuba, I'm going to extend you the offer the offer to come to Ghana with us. OK. All right. We were okay. actually scheduled to go this summer and then the pandemic happened. Mm. Um, but next summer, we're definitely going. OK, so I'm hitting you up. Hit me up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I also want to talk a little bit about mental health and wellness. Mm -hmm. Um, you've seen through a couple of my posts that we've started to focus on that a lot more with our young people and mostly because young people demanded it. Um, but then I also came across your Facebook post where you talked mm -hmm. about um, your own experiences with suicidality um, and how your community reached out to you and, mm -hmm. and sort of how you are, I won't say healed, but kind of going through a healing process. Mm -hmm. um, I think wellness work is so important for all of us, but really important for young people as well. So can you just talk mm. a little bit about, you know, your mental health journey and mm. also like why do you think it's important for us to, to do this work with young people? Yeah. Well, yeah, thank you for asking me that. I think um, so last year was a challenge to say the least. Um, and I think I had several things that piled up in my life that I wasn't able to address in the ways that I normally do. Um, you know, as I mentioned, I've, I've gone through trauma pretty much my entire life. And so I had developed ways to um, really help myself get back to where I need to be mentally. But uh, that day in particular, uh, September 24th, 2019, just a lot of things just hit at once. And um, I didn't want to be here anymore. And so I think what saved me is I developed a plan actually a year before that um, I could walk through if I ever felt like um, I wanted to transition. And I basically 
went through that entire plan. And so, um, wow. you know, at the moment that I found my, my mood spiraling, um, I enjoyed driving. So I just got in the car, just started driving. Uh, that didn't work. So the next piece was I like certain types of music. So I put on some music uh, that didn't work. Uh, the direction that I was driving, uh, I was heading toward uh, toward Greensboro and uh, I love arcade games. And so uh, okay. so they have an arcade there and uh, stopped in at the arcade. Uh, didn't feel like playing any games. Um, went outside. They had a pizza stand. I like pizza. Wasn't hungry. And so went through every step. And the very last thing that I did, and I referenced this in my in my Facebook message, mm-hmm. is I sent a text to someone that I knew that cared about me. And I was very clear and specific about what the text was. And I told her, uh, I'm thinking about killing myself. I'm sorry. And she called me maybe a minute later. And she said, where are you? And she dropped everything that she was doing. She drove from about an hour and a half away and um, took care of me. And so, so I think that... Um, it's important that we talk about mental health in particular uh, with black and brown youth because there's a stigma when it comes to uh, getting help that especially folks that I say uh, that identify as Christian, it's just notion, just pray about it, baby. Uh, just, you know, mm-hmm. that's the devil. And, 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 and um, that's not helpful. I mean, you, if you can get professional help, um, get yourself together, get it, get what it is you need to begin healing and to do it in a space where you can release, uh, the shame that's associated with it. Uh, because I think a lot of folks are just ashamed to say they need help or just ashamed to say they're struggling. And I'd say in particular, the reason I decided to share is I recognize as a black man, it's particularly difficult for black men to seek help, uh, to, yes. to talk to others, to, to be able to express, uh, the broad array of emotions that exist, but the uh, the fear that if one shows up with those emotions, that they're then going to be um, you know called names or just seen as not uh, not men, so to speak. And right. so for me, I wanted to share that with uh, other folks, but in particular, um, you know, men who may be suffering in silence uh, to to do what they need to do to to get connected to support. Right. May I ask how much of this was connected to your sexuality? Was was some of this about struggling with that? Mm, no, I mean, I, I would say uh, so there were several things. I say the first was uh, no longer having a relationship with my parents, um, okay. which um, and actually going through therapy, um, it was recommended that I disconnect from my parents. And so okay. at that time, I hadn't spoken to my parents in about a year uh, because they were just several uh, toxic behaviors that were showing up that were connected to unfinished business from my childhood. And ultimately um, things that they hadn't worked through were being projected onto me. And so in order for me to take care of myself, I had to disconnect. And that's difficult because I think a lot of folks, when they consider family, they think about family as blood. And then, so if you're not connected to your, your blood family, you don't really have, and I I just don't, I I don't think that's a good idea. You know, I think that if anyone's in an abusive relationship, I think most folks would want you to leave it. And so if you feel you're being abused by your family, it doesn't matter if they're blood, um, you have to figure out a way to take care of yourself. So there was, there was that, there was a a really nasty custody battle that I was having with my ex-partner, um, you know, over my daughter, you know, that was stressful. Uh, and then professionally, um, there were uh, several things going on when it related to, uh, to funding and in particular, um, you know, me, um, in essence, um, being a whistleblower with one of the agencies in which I was receiving funding. And then I was actively punished for that. And so all of that, um, you know, stacked up 
was a recipe for me to um, say, you know what, this is overload. Uh, and so I can move forward. Uh, but to address the, the part about sexuality, I think the, the reason that um, it didn't make sense for me to, to not share that part right. of me is um, twofold. I mean, so I consider the emotional side of it that um, in order to be psychologically healthy, you, there's this, this level of progression where you become more and more of yourself. Right. And for me, um, I have a very clear understanding of who I am and where I want to go. And so I, I want to be myself. I want to show up as my whole self and not have to pretend or, or uh, dance around things. And so there was that piece. But then it's the, the logical side, too, just in reading. And so as I mentioned earlier, mm -hmm. this notion of, of having the, the knowledge, the information um, that sexuality is a social construct. So for me, mm -hmm. it, it just doesn't it didn't make sense in either regard for me to not share that. Uh, right. and, and I guess this, the third piece that I'll add too is uh, I think it's important for um, for young people to have uh, queer folks that are visible that they can look at. So again, this notion what they see is what they'll be. It's important. Visibility matters. And so when right. a young folk, when a young person uh, perhaps might be struggling with who they are and they see an adult that's willing to to um, in essence fight for the right to exist, right. Um, that can encourage a young person to say, well, you know what? Um, I can be myself too. Mm -hmm. And in an essence, uh, if I'm not myself, I'm disconnecting the world from, from the greatness that exists. Uh, and so we want, we want folks to show up fully. Yeah, absolutely. And the reason I asked that question is just because we know that young folks who are queer struggle a lot. Oh, absolutely. Right. Um, and so I just wanted to, to make that explicit. Like, was that a part of what was going on? Um, so can I ask what made you decide to come out? especially now? Uh, you know, it's, uh, I'm about to be 35 and, um, you know, I just, I just felt, you know, especially in the work that I'm doing, um, you know, if I have a loud voice when it comes to racial equity, I need to have that same loud voice when it comes to issues in the LGBTQ community, because I know the personal is political. And so, right. so for me, um, uh, again, I've I've lived in such a way for a very long time, and even to me coming out, I'm the same person, you know. So there's nothing there's nothing that's really different yeah. <laughs> about me, other than I'm like, oh, I'm I'm out, like I'm I'm pansexual, like this is who I am, and it's right. like, boom, you know. So so what's up, you know? And <laughs> and I'm 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 good with that, you know. And I think that um, I'm hoping that this kind of removes any other barriers that existed between me and others and having real relationships. Mm -hmm. And so now that it's out there, um, let's, let's talk about it. So if you're curious, then, you know, ask me questions and, and let's, let's see where that goes. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. And, and back to the one hundreds model that, you know, what you see is what you'll be. There are queer black boys out there who need yep. to see you, mm -hmm. who need to know you exist um, and who need to see you be loved. Yeah. Right. So that they can know what's possible for them too. <laughs> That's what's up. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of this, the, the work of this podcast is about reimagining. Mm. Um, and so, you know, just trying to help folks think through their work and how they can be more innovative, how they can reimagine. Can you give us some, some, some explicit strategies that you think, you know, other nonprofits, teachers even can use uh, to begin to reimagine their work with young people? Mm. Well, I think um, 
the way out is in. And so I think that before one can reimagine their work with young people, they need to reimagine the work with themselves. You know, so how do you how do you start to interrogate um, your relationship with yourself, uh, your your baggage, your blind spots and do so in such a way that you you put them on the table and then you figure out what you need to do to begin to gain a, a greater understanding of who you are. Uh, and I think that that then creates greater compassion to young folks. And I, I think we've talked about this before, that um, unresolved stuff can be projected onto a young person. And so, so you can yep. be in a relationship with, with a, a mentoring relationship with a young folk, young person. And uh, because you have something that's come up that reminds you of your childhood that you haven't resolved and that young person seems to be a bit further along, then you could then dump your stuff onto them. And, and mm-hmm. you know, we talked about this earlier. It's like, that's, that's not my stuff. You know, you, you, you keep that. So I think mm-hmm. that, that folks need to really do their own work first. Um, and I think that, that then creates the pathway to reimagining what uh, youth and adult relationships look like. Uh, I say the second piece, and this is more so uh, with other leaders of color. Mm-hmm. I think that um, we, we, it is contingent upon us to not see each other's adversaries. Mm. Um, there, there are a lot of folks, uh, and, and again, it's, it's, not, it's not a judgment, it's just the, the nature of, of white supremacist culture that pits people against one another. And so you have uh, a black person uh, that may feel like they're chosen and they're shining and then somebody else that looks like them is shining and they see them as a threat. And to me, it's like, we can both shine. We can all eat, you know, Absolutely. so let's figure out uh, how do we get this bread together? Yes. You know, and, and I think that that requires a level of uh, disconnecting from um, needing the affirmation of white folks, um, because I think there's something seductive about being in these systems where you feel like you're chosen that then you disconnect from the people that you were intending to serve in the first place. Uh, so that's, that's something that, that I think really needs to, uh, to happen. Yeah. 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 I want to ask you a question um, specifically around recruiting black men as mentors. Mm. Okay. Because I get that question a lot. How do we bring more black men into the fold as mentors? Um, you've been mentored by black men through hundred, through, you know, the hundred black men, Um, you are a black male mentor. I know you work with several black men who are mentors. Mm -hmm. Well, how can programs attract black men to become mentors? Hmm. Well, um, I think the, the, the caveat that I would offer about recruiting, um, black men as mentors is, is really develop, developing a, a training plan that helps to deconstruct uh, I guess patriarchy and the ways in which um, men and mentoring relationships can can show up in ways that are that are harmful uh, because I think there's a lot of there's a lot of baggage that that men carry. There's a uh, there's a book by Bell Hooks called uh, The Will to Change: uh, Men, Masculinity, and Love, and it mm-hmm. talks about how um, collectively we're we're grieving over men that are disconnected from um, portions of themselves. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. how do we how do we reclaim uh, feminine energy that men need? Uh, to be uh, full human beings mm. and, and show up in ways that are that are real and, and legitimate and not uh, performative in nature. Uh, but to that point, I think really um, going to where you might find black men. I mean, there there are black men, you know, in barbershops that want to be mentors. There are black men uh, that are in various places, and so so going to them and presenting the opportunity to um, be in be in relationship 
uh, perhaps some ways that maybe they didn't experience. Uh, and so I think those are a couple of ways. Good, thank you. Um, I like that you made the point, yes, we need black men to mentor, but we also need black men to do some work. That's right. Uh, before they engage in relationships. Um, and I think that's important because sometimes, you know, these organizations, they want numbers. Yeah. Right. We just need a critical mass of black men to mentor, not recognizing that, you know, just like anybody else, you got some folks who are going to be incredible mentors. You got some folks who need to do some work before yep. they, they step up to the table. So thank you for <laughs> being really <laughs> intentional about that. Um, I feel like I have so many more questions and I've been, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I've been watching my little timer over here like, oh, mm -hmm. um, I, one more question before my last question, which okay. is, you know, just again about Southern context, mm -hmm. because a lot of the things that you've said um, that have been amazing, people would not necessarily think would be like this is what's happening in the South, right? Okay. What do you think is being remixed or reimagined in the South? That the, that the rest of the country can follow? Hmm. Well, I think, I think the South is an interesting place. I'd say, um, in particular, North Carolina is interesting. Um, I think because of the history of race and racism, um, I think there, there is an increase, uh, increased need in, in focusing on, on racial equity. I say here, here in particular, North Carolina, uh, we have a group called the Racial Equity Institute. And so, and that's, that's where I guess I got, um, you know, I, I got my initial training and then uh, connected to other groups there. And so I, I think there, there is an increasing, um, I guess, focus on racial equity. Uh, but I can say a lot of, a lot of the work that um, I think has not quite uh, happened yet or has not been, been remixed is looking at the ways in which um, we can break people out of silos. Um, and, and I think that, you know, you'll have folks that, that are serving a pocket of young people here or young people there, um, and not actively communicating with one another. Right. And so, so one of the key things that I'm looking at is how, how can we leverage this notion of, of bringing folks together in community, um, having those critical conversations and then figuring out what does that mean, uh, in regards to how we not only, uh, heal ourselves, but, right. but create pathways for young folks to, uh, to explore that too. Got you. So my very last question, and I've been asking this of every guest, in your freedom dreams, what does the future of youth work look like? You know, I think um, if there is a way we can get to greater humility when it comes to, um, to ageism, you know, where adults are thinking uh, they have the answers. Um, so I have a daughter who's eight and, uh, you know, she, she's my sensei. Uh, she is, uh, my, my pride and joy. And I think that the way that she, she looks at the world, um, reminds me of the, the brilliance of children. Mm. Uh, she, she has not been inundated with the messages that adults have about, uh, how she should show up or, what she should look like uh you know she's just she's just doing her thing you know and and, and it's it's funny um because the level the level of joy that she has about life uh is infectious and it, you know some it's funny um you know sometimes we'll be together she'll just be smiling i'm like what are you smiling about and she's like i don't know you know she's just <laughs> she's just happy to be here and i yeah. think that uh it's something about um as we grow older we start to recognize how cruel the world is. Mm -hmm. And that's when we start to disconnect from those pieces of ourselves where, 
you know, you may be in school and then someone uh, calls you a name and, and you never considered that to be your name. And it's like, am, is that who I am? Or you start watching TV and then you see who's elevated and who's not there. And so if you're uh, a young person and you never see yourself uh, represented on TV, then you start to recognize, oh, I don't, I'm not supposed to be here because I'm not recognized here. And so, so I think um, what I'm, what I'm hoping to do in the way in which I parent her uh, and how this might connect to, to, to freedom dreams is mm -hmm. how can we be very intentional about uh, media messages, uh, about uh, the sorts of things we, we, we consume. Right. Um, and, and then, you know, in essence, reconnect to our childhood. You know, there's a, uh, there's a book that I'm reading right now called uh, The Body is Not an Apology. Mm. And it talks about how, um, you know, as infants, as we come into the world, we love our bodies, we delight in our bodies. We're not worried about, oh, uh, it, you know, do my, do my thighs look big? Or do, or do I have this? I mean, babies, they, they, they just delight, you know, when they yeah. figure out they have feet, you know, they just, you know, and I think that, you know, if we go back to what it meant to be young, what it meant to be a child, mm -hmm. um, we can we can see the world differently. And I think that too often when we get older, we think we have the answers when in essence we don't. Um, and so really that that freedom dream is us becoming more like children, uh, laughing, you know, smiling, uh, playing together, uh, delighting in one another's company. Right. You know, those types of things that that seem to be so foreign these days. Absolutely. And that's wellness, isn't it? Yep, it is. <laughs> Joy is wellness. Yes. Thank you so much. Do you have any other gems you want to drop before we end here? Hey, you know, this this was good for me. I, I appreciate the opportunity always to just see your face and talk to you. So thank you for the opportunity. The feeling is mutual. I got much love for you, Atreus. You already know. <laughs> you already know. <laughs> to everybody listening, we have been talking to Atreus Good, president and CEO of Mentor North Carolina. He dropped a, several gems but he also dropped uh, a name of a few books that will definitely be in the episode notes. Um, and I'll also have a link to hundred black men of America in case any of you also want to look them up and a link to Atreus's bio and the wonderful work that he's doing at mentor North Carolina. Thank you for joining us. Keep doing the good work.